For those of you who don't know me, my name is Corey Bendix. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, pastor of outreach and evangelism. Um, really good, good to be here. If you've got your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we're about to dive into a brand new series, series that we're calling uh, But Why? But Why? Six reasons that Jesus had to die. But why? Six reasons that Jesus had to die. We're looking at the book of Ephesians for six weeks. We're going to plunge ourselves into what Paul is going to unlock for us that will prepare our hearts for the Easter season. Uh, we are in a day where the message of Jesus uh, is often twisted beyond recognition uh, into a type of rope to hold up individual, political, or social ideologies. And for six weeks, what we're going to do is we are going to look at the essential achievement in human history, Amen. the cross. We're going to consider um, what it looks like for us to, to now unpack and unravel and discover the superabundance of this divine provision. As the weeks go on, we're going we're gonna to see that this, this cross, singular gift, it provides a, a, us, it, it provides a way for us to now lead and live uh, a cross-shaped life. We're going to discover that everything that was lost in the, in the first tree, the tree of life, is now restored and renewed and redeemed in the second tree, namely the cross. We're going to learn that the cross is going to empower you to hate sin. Amen. To root it out. Yes. To be ruthless with it. That which suffocates and separates. That which Jesus ultimately died for. But often we ask the question, why? Like, why would Jesus really have to die in a gruesome way like that? Like, like isn't that too much? What's the reason? What's the purpose? What's the motivation? Why? Why did Jesus have to do that? It's an it's a important question. And for tonight, um, I, my focus is going to be, but why the forgiveness of sins? And this, we're going to discover, is the single greatest achievement that props up everything else that we are going to study in the book of Ephesians. You see, the, the cross is going to do some amazing things. It's going to affect us as it pertains to principalities and powers. It's going to impact how we relate husbands and wives. It's going to affect how we are now brought close to God. It's going to, it's going to overwhelm us with God's love. But underneath all of it, what props it all up is the fact that we are forgiven of our sins. Like, that's the singular hope that we have. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, we find that the text, and if you would stand as we honor the reading of the word, it says this in verses 3 to 8. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, his grace, with which we have, which, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, here's our key verse. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us all. You can be seated. Lord, we bless the reading of your word. It happened in 2013. A gentleman by the name of James Howell had an urge to clean out his desk. He was doing some spring cleaning and discovered that he had a couple of hard drives that he needed to, to consider. He didn't need two, he just needed one. So he saw one and he decided to toss it out. It was the size of about an iPhone 6 or so. And he discovered that that hard drive contained the password for his Bitcoin. Uh, if you know anything about Bitcoin, Bitcoin, they give you a password. And if it's one password in the world, it's not like you can do some type of a password uh, discover or a password reset. You got one shot. He had one password and he put it on this hard drive. And he had just purchased 8,000 Bitcoins. Now, at the time, that Bitcoin value was upwards of about $500 million. And to his horror, it got placed in a landfill that had over 110,000 pounds of garbage. And over the last 10 years, this man has been working with all of his might to try to figure out a way to get into that dump. He is paying people. He's like, I'll give you whatever it takes. Can you join me as we get our hands dirty? Because I've got to find the hard drive. The moral of the story for this man is that when things with irreplaceable value are treated as common, heartache is the inevitable result. We find the, the, the church at Ephesus at a unique space in their history. They were about 10 years old at the, at the time. They were, if you know anything about the church at Ephesus, in Acts 19, they were birthed. And they were birthed with miracles, with signs, with wonders. I mean, it was supernatural responses to the gospel. It was off the chain. I mean, it was beyond anything that anybody had ever seen. And the church is, is birthed in this moment. And 10 years later, we find that what once had enormous value was starting to get familiar. Namely, the cross. And what Paul does is Paul is going to plunge them quickly, beginning in verse 3, into this pool of identity of, of what God in Christ has purchased on their behalf. That we find in verse 3 that they are made to be holy in the image of God, that God has created them to be holy. 
if you understand the character and nature of God, you can, the lowest common denominator outside of everything that he is, and he's loving, he's powerful, but underneath it all, he's, he's holy. And what Paul is saying is that, church at Ephesus, you were created to be the image bearers of God. He goes on to say, you were created in, in love. You're fully loved. He said, you were created to be adopted, to be sons and daughters. What you can conclude is that what Paul is saying is he's saying the truest thing about you, church at Ephesus, is that you are image bearers. You are fully loved. You're beloved. And you're sons and daughters. Like this is the word for us. No matter where you find yourself as it pertains to the identity that you are discovering uh, culturally or in your relationship with God, you're trying to find it. What is my identity? And Paul says, this is who you are. It comes with complete intimacy. It comes with mutual love. It comes with radical openness. It is the embodiment of the Trinity. And he says, everything about who you are, the truest thing about you is hinged in verse 7. The only way we can have our identity is it rushes us, plunges us, it points us to verse 7. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Do you see how this props up everything? What the writer is saying is that he says, he starts off, in him we have redemption. And in, in this text, here's what I'm going to try to prove. I'm going to try to prove two things. Christ, the great achievement. He's our eternal redemption. And then Christ, the great abundance. An eternal inheritance. And from the very beginning, he uses language redemption. Now, let's just get a definition of terms. When you think about redeem, the literal meaning of this word is, is to buy off, to set free from the payment of a, of a price. Think a marketplace in Rome. The egregious acts of, of the selling of, of slaves. And this was very common for this word to be used in this context, where it was a slave auction. And at the center of the slave auction would be a spear jammed above where the stage was where the slave would be brought and led underneath the spear. And it would be there that they would be sold. It was not uncommon originally for people to, to be bought out of slavery by paying a price. And in the theological tension of what we're reading, what Paul is saying is that Paul is saying that we have been ransomed from our sin by one man who came and entered underneath the spear and has communicated, has let you now, has released you out of the fact that this one man paid one price to now set you free in a way that's free, full, and forever. This, this is, this is the, 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 both the understanding, the, the freedom but also, it requires some questions because there's some concerns. Well, Corey, what are we redeemed out of? Why do I need to be redeemed? What really is underneath it all? And we have to consider and go back to 
to where sin entered into and one decision now changed the course of history and it began in Genesis 3. Where self-justifying autonomy. What, what I mean by that, it is, it, it is the, the whispers from Satan that said God can't be trusted. You're better off alone. This, this ongoing uh, theme of our culture, live your truth, be true to yourself, follow your heart, be the captain of your soul, of your ship. Like this is, it is very similar to what Satan is whispering to Adam and Eve in this garden full of, of everything you could imagine. They are free. They have a, a relationship, a fellowship with their king that they have ongoing encounters sharing God's heart, them sharing their, their heart with the creator. I mean, this is, this is Eden. And yet, You've got, you've got Satan, and he's doing one thing. He's just whispering the fact that you can do better. Live your truth, girl. Live your truth. This is at the heart of, of what Satan is whispering. is God can't be trusted. You're better off on your own. And they did it. Took the fruit, and they ate it. And in one act, they usurped God's authority. Now, I know what you're asking. You're saying, Corey, is it really necessary for one act to now destroy everything that Adam and Eve have? Like, is that really, like, does it make a lot of sense? Well, uh, let, let me explain it like this. Um, it's not what you do. It's who you do it to. This is what I mean. If you come and you push me, you shove me to the ground, I probably deserved it. Uh, you, you go to a police officer and you shove a police officer to the ground, you get ready. You, you push the president of the United States down, you better sign your will. It's not what you do. It's, it's who you do it to. One act of rebellion against a holy God set off firestorm all out of autonomy. An autonomy that said, I can do it better on my own. The result of this autonomy is, is stunning. I've got a chart behind me, but just walk through me with all with the implications of what happened in this one moment. The result of autonomy, it was alienation. Now look at this. That in Genesis 3.11, God is alienated from us and is angry with us. 3.10, we are alienated from God and we flee from him. 3.7, we are alienated from ourselves and we experience shame. 3.16, we are alienated from our bodies. 3.12, we are alienated from each other. 3.17, we are alienated from the rest of creation. 3.18, creation is alienated from itself. Out of one moment of autonomy brings alienation. Alienation brings evil. Evil enters into the world, but evil isn't just out there. Evil 
is in me. The evil is within. And what the one thing that we can draw from with Genesis 3 is simply this. That as a result of our autonomy, our resistance, and the, and the, the pending alienation, there's guilt that I'm left with. And there's a wrath from God that must be averted. Just there's guilt and wrath. In fact, Ephesians 2, 3 calls us children of wrath. And I know we hear that word wrath, the wrath of God. Pastor AJ crushed it a couple weeks ago talking about unpacking the, the wrath of God. And we hate, like, we, we push against that. But God has to be angry at evil. He, he has to. If he's not angry at evil, if he doesn't have wrath, he's an apathetic, disengaged, unjust God. If he doesn't express wrath, he is sinning by not taking sin, by ultimately taking sin lightly. But the problem is that we are the cause of the evil, and ultimately that anger is pointed at us. You, you seeing this? We have a guilt problem. We have a wrath problem. N.T. Wright says this about the wrath of God. And I usually, I know I go kind of haywire on the whole quotes thing. This is my only one for tonight. So just bear with me. Bear with me. But it's a doozy. The wrath of God is simply the shadow side of the love of God. For his wonderful creation and his amazing human creatures, like a great artist appalled at the way his paintings have been defaced by the very people who were supposed to be looking after them. God's implacable rejection of evil is the natural outflowing of his creative love. God's anger against evil is itself the determination to put things right, to get rid of the corrupt attitudes and behaviors that have spoiled his world and his human creatures. It is because God loves the glorious world that he has made and is utterly determined to put everything right, that he's utterly opposed to everything that spoils or destroys that creation, especially the human creatures who were supposed to be the linchpins of his plan for how that creation would flourish. This is what he's saying. Wrath is the other side of God's love, the root of justice in the world. It is not, please hear this, this is, it's not emotional outrage. When you hear wrath, you automatically assume, assume someone's losing it. It's not emotional outrage or outburst. It is a settled disposition towards the world that he created. And I am a part of the problem. And yet, what I love about Genesis 3, and, and then from there flowing through the rest of the Old Testament, God does not leave humanity alone. He doesn't leave them alone. And God does not make, simply make a, a promise to Adam and Eve. He makes a provision. He takes an animal he slays it and he covers them. Now this moment, it is now, it is pointing to one that would come to cover us freely 
forever. Like, like this is what God is doing is God should have crushed them and killed them on the spot, but his grace flows out of the fact that he covers them, he kicks them out of the garden, but he makes both a promise and a provision. One is coming. One is coming, and we see this rolling through the rest of the Old Testament. We find even like the offering of Isaac in Genesis 22. It's speaking of one who would cover wrath and cover guilt. The Passover lamb, the, the tabernacle, the day of atonement. All of these things are speaking to you and I that God has a plan to redeem you, to cover you. And in one act, everything was removed. In one act, everything will be replaced. One act. And the old covenant speaks of this sacrificial system. Leviticus 17, 11 says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. People would participate in the sacrificial system and in anticipating the work of Christ, they would be forgiven. But, but just think of if you've ever given your kids your credit card, dangerous moment, they don't realize that they can get in their mind whatever they want and somehow it's being paid for, but they don't realize Somebody is left with the bill. The sacrificial system is a credit card that was swiped and swiped and swiped. And God forgave. But someone has to pay this thing. Someone has to pay it. Hebrews does such an amazing job of unpacking what it looks like for the fact that this system that was set up in the Old Testament, it was ultimately, it was ineffectual. Like for example, in Hebrews 10, 4, for it is impossible for the blood of, of bulls and goats to take away sin. What's he saying? That the, that the sacrifice itself, it's ineffectual. But wait, it gets worse. Hebrews 10, 11, every priest offers repeatedly the same sacrifices which cannot take away sin. Guess what? That the people who perform those sacrifices, that's ineffectual too. Everything seems to be ineffectual, except everything is leading to a hope that although the old, the old covenant dealt with the human problem provisionally, Christ deals with this problem decisively. Decisively. That we find the new covenant, it all rushes to what Hebrews 9.26 says, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you, do you, do you see he's both the priest and the lamb? I mean, in John you have Jesus, he calls himself the good shepherd. But the good shepherd is also called by John in John 1.29, the lamb of God who, who comes to take away the sins of the world. I mean, he's both. He, he's the only one that can be both, and we had to have both. We had to have it. 
But let's, let's get a little closer. Let's, let's nestle up a little closer to the cross. See how it all went down. In Matthew 27, 40, it says this. You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Do you see the autonomy? That those who are crushing him are, are wooing him to just do what Adam and Eve did. Save yourself. Live your best life. Live your truth. Save yourself. Do you, do you, do you see how the very message that intoxicates us and lulls us to sleep is the very reason that Jesus went to the cross. That, that he, was, he was wooed, he was begged, he was told, save yourself. And his response, he stays. He stays, he redeems you and I. And not only does he do, he not only does he stay, but then he follows it up with, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he follows it up after that with, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening? Forgiveness. The wrath of God that you and I deserve are now meeting and immersing one man who deserved none of this. And then he, he ends it with, it is finished. And a thunderclap of victory went throughout the world. That the reign of suffering and death had ended. Why? Why? Because our guilt has been removed in the person of Jesus. And wrath that surely was ours. Met in one man. What's, what's, what's the result of this? What's the result of this one man's sacrifice? He entered once and for all into the holy places. Not by means of calves. But by means of his own blood. Achieving, get this, an eternal redemption. Do you know what's going to keep you when the second coming comes? Do you realize that when Jesus returns, that the act of this one man on the cross is enough not just to forgive you now, but to prepare you and make you confident when the second coming comes. That this is an eternal redemption. And it, is, it, it cleanses you so decisively, so clearly, that I, I love um, in 1 Corinthians... Chapter 3, verse 16, it says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, I don't know if you know this, but there's two Greek words for temple. One is a physical temple and one is the holy of holies. Which word do you think Paul is using when he calls you and I a temple? The holy of holies. He, like, this forgiveness cleanses so completely, so overwhelmingly, that without, without you doing anything but calling upon the name of Jesus, being found in Christ, rushing to this, this sacrifice, this place of, this altar of hope called the cross, 
Now we become this temple. We become the temple. But what is this, like what is the practical outworking of that? Corey, that sounds good, okay? Okay, I have been forgiven. I've been forgiven. Now what does that cause me to do? How should I live as a result of that? Guilt removing, wrath averting work of Christ now empowers you to forgive. Do you know that? That in Ephesians chapter 4, same book we're, we're looking at, this is what it says, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That forgiveness is the new kingdom currency. It's been given to you without end. Like, do you realize that? That there will be no end. You wake up, it's there. You go to sleep, it's there. You sin, it's there. You read your Bible, it's there. And this currency flowing to you now is to be flowing through you. Do you, do you, do you realize the, the implications of the cross that everything else that happens in the book of Ephesians props up on the hope of what this achievement has given to you and I, a great redemption. Paul goes on. I'm running slow on time, so I'm going to forget my illustrations. Uh, let's stay in the text. You know what? I got one illustration. You're going to love this. You're going to love this. So, now, there is nothing that is more sad to me than riches that aren't enjoyed. You see, the back half of this text that we just read in verse 8, verse, uh, verse 7, um, according to all of this, all of this redemption has been given, but it's according to something. It's according to the, the riches of his grace. There's a, a woman by the name of, of Hetty Green, Miss Green, she, um, she looks like, she, yeah, she's had a tough time. Um, she's had a rough go at it. But she's called the Queen of Wall Street. And she was known for her ability to, to, get, to make ruthless deals. And, I mean, she salvaged New York City in 1907. I mean, she... She was phenomenal when it comes to her as a businesswoman. But she was identified as the richest woman in America in the Gilded Ages when everyone else who was a financier was a man. But she also made the Guinness Book. She's the biggest miser in the world. She was the wealthiest woman who refused to spend her money. She refused to buy expensive clothes, as you can see. She's, she had one dress, and she wore that thing to the end. And then she refused to pay her, like, for hot water. Like, she, she was a woman who had everything but refused to enjoy it. And in Jesus, what we have is one man who says, man, I want you to spend what I have, what, what I have purchased, which is forgiven. I want you to spend it. I want you to do it, not just spend it. I want you to enjoy me. You see, what all of this attains is not just the ability to feel better about yourself after you sin. Amen. That's not the purpose of forgiveness. You see, forgiveness 
that now allows for us to enjoy the creator in the same way Adam and Eve did. Everything lost in the first tree, restored in the second tree, gives us an endless now relationship with the God of all creation. And then as a result, what we find in the rest of Ephesians 1, 2, all the way through the rest of the book, it says this, 118, we now have the riches of his glorious inheritance. 2-4, we have the riches of his mercy. 2-7, the riches of his kindness towards us. 3-8, uh, riches that must be spoken of to the Gentiles. 3-16, riches that empower you with strength through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. 4-3, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All of these riches are now yours for you to enjoy the God of all creation. Like what would happen if all of the hindrances of your past and the wonderings of does God really forgive me? Like, like the only thing that will damn us is unforgiven sin. But what happens when that unforgiven sin is forgiven? Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So here, this one reality of God's forgiveness, it unlocks the treasure troves of thousands and thousands of promises. Everything is yes in Jesus Christ. But I've, I found the best promise. The best. And it's in Hebrews 8.10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts, and here it is. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Do you realize that everything that God is and does is for you and not against you? Just imagine now a life where you can enjoy the God of all creation, knowing that there is nothing inhibiting you from fellowship with the creator because we have one man who offered himself in one sacrifice and that now takes away all guilt and appeases the wrath of God. Okay, so I didn't, I, I lied. I got one last quote and I'm gonna end with this. I, this is it, but this is a good one. This is from Christopher West. This is what he says. The Latin word for mercy is misericordia. It means a heart which gives itself to those in misery. We seem to think that our misery repulses God, but God is rich in mercy. And this means it is our misery that attracts his heart to us. Like a child who instinctively and compassionately wants to mend the wing of a bird that has fallen from its nest, Christ wants to heal us, to restore us to our true humanity. He wants to set us free. And I just sense that where, wherever you are, that, that for many of us, we have a relationship with God, but there is something within us that it's like it tears us from the confidence that's ours, 
thinking that there is going to be something that will come back and haunt you, or you have outsinned the mercy and the grace and the power and the cross of Jesus, that tonight is a night for you to once and for all come out of the stake, come out of the stake of slavery. You've been set free. You've been set free. It's that, that the days of you hitching yourself to sin are done. Why? Because of the cross of Jesus. The days of us wallowing in our past. One man, one price, one freedom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for who you are, for what you're doing. God, we thank you that you are enough. That you are enough. God, I, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would just meet this amazing family in the intimate places of their heart. God, I'm asking that you would seal this reality that in Christ we're forgiven and that nothing and no man can separate us from the love of God. God, in a day and age where we're told that you are only as good as your last win, we come to the win of Jesus, the victory given to us in himself, and we say yes.